Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Synthetic Dreams podcast. For the show today, I was delighted to speak to Jazz Willis from popular electronic group Utah Saints. The group, described as a first true stadium house band by the KLF's Bill Drummond, rose to fame in the early 90s after enjoying a string of hit singles which propelled them into the limelight. Their self-titled debut is still one of my favourite albums of the early 90s and in my opinion still sounds fantastic today. In more recent years, Jez and fellow Utah member Tim Garbutt have mainly concentrated on the DJing side of things, as well as creating their very own stage at the popular Beat Herder Festival. So it was quite literally music to my ears to find out that the group are actually currently working on some new Utah Saints material. Jez spoke to me about playing Top of the Pops, DJing at early raves, supporting you two on a massive US stadium tour. Jez also gave some really useful advice for any new musicians that are starting out. Please follow the Sympathetic Dreams podcast Twitter page and subscribe to the show on Spotify. Thanks as always for listening. So thanks for coming on the show tonight. Thanks for having uh, me. I just wanted to sort of speak to you about where you are and how life's been in the lockdown for you, if it's, if it's changed your working habits at all or is it still kind of business as usual? Well, uh, like everybody, I suppose, there's been pros and cons and challenging times and less challenging times. So I guess when it all kicked off, like a lot of people, the, the weather was out, it was, you know, the sun was out and, and sort of you could get out a little bit, you know, and just get just to have the sunshine there was a nice thing. And uh, and then the novelty definitely wore off pretty quickly of that. Um, and then January just gone, uh, January 2000, uh, 2021, for just about everybody I know was a tough one. And I know that I've got I've got a friend who, who um, is an ex-professional rugby player, and he's usually really stoic about everything. And I, I, we you know he's not we communicate once every few months or so. Is it you know it's not like a daily thing. Anyway, he just texts me out of the blue saying. January's been tough. And I thought, yeah, he's, he's right. So um, in terms of work, no, I mean, we, it, I think for musicians, for a lot of us, we, we're kind of used to a solitary existence <laughs> indoors a lot of the time um, where we're just sort of plugging away with, with sounds. And, and I guess the Zoom thing's been really good um, in terms of sort of connecting with, with people. It, now it's become normal or relatively normal i think it's a fantastic way of networking again and things like this you know so because perhaps in the past we would have thought to do an interview or something you'd have to, to do it in person and set up a camera or whatever but now you know we, we're all kind of used to this this environment even if it is a little bit odd in, in, in you know but it's, it's probably better than speaking on the phone sometimes yeah i must prefer it and you can see sometimes if you've got the video on like this, it's nice to sort of see someone while you're talking to them, even though this was an audio podcast, but yeah, so that's good. So yeah. I would say, so where were you in with the first lockdown? Did you say, were you, were you touring or did you have DJ? No, well, I mean, we, we, uh, like again, like a lot of us, we've got a pretty, March is when kind of things start falling into place. There's a bit of a lull January, February in terms of live gigs. So we, we still DJ out a lot. And um, so Everything, at least, you know, when I say a lot, not compared to when we started, but at least a couple of times a month, you know, we're, we're doing something somewhere. Yeah. And uh, so all that kind of disappeared. And we, we curate a stage at um, a festival called Beat Herder, which is kind of probably between Manchester and, and Leeds. So, yeah. and uh, we curate three days um, at, the, at this stage. So, so we put the lineup together and everything, which is brilliant. And 
uh, obviously that went out the window and, and various other festival things. So that was, that was a bit of a challenge. So we kind of regrouped a bit and tried to um, just think about what we're doing. So we've been working on, on tracks again, which is novel for us. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Is there any, anything you can share at the moment? I suppose that's all a little bit kind of, you know, everyone likes to be a bit quiet before it's, you know, if you can really... It's not even that. i tell you what that is, what it is, is it's, um, we've always had this kind of super self-critical thing, which has held us back, to be honest, and, and got in our own way. And, and um, we're only now starting to get to a stage after nearly 30 years of stop trying to compare ourselves to ourselves instead of comparing ourselves to every other person in the world. And um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that, that we went through a stage and we didn't realize, but we went through a stage probably uh, of about four. Last thing we had out was 2012 with drum sound and bass on Smith. Um, and, and it was a drum and bass version of what can you do for me, which is one of the, which is our first ever kind of success. And that did okay. It was on ministry sound and, and, and things, but, Everything we wrote in the, the following sort of two, three years had this kind of melancholic feel to it. And uh, just before, you know, just, just before we started this podcast, we talked about New Order and I, I'm a massive fan of New Order. Just, I'm Joy Division, you know, they're, they're like a massive part of, of, of my youth and performative years. And just in terms of their music, it was just, they broke so, down so many barriers. So, um, and but that, that band can get away with a, a melancholy. And, for Utahs, it doesn't quite fit what people expect us to be. So, so we took it a bit of a step back, which is tricky to get a perspective, like any of us, you know, getting perspective on yourself can be a challenge. Took a step back and thought, right, in a nutshell, let's write some ha happy stuff. And, and if we're not in, you know, for me, if I'm not in the headspace to write something up, don't, you know, just step away or leave it on the hard drive and mute it for something else. So basically that, then we spent the last four years doing virtual crate digging. This is a long answer. I apologize for this. Um, four years or so um, doing virtual crate digging online and finding samples that we don't think anybody else has used. And we've now got a lot. So now we're starting to form them in, into tracks. So it's a long, painful process, though, because I think we've got, it's weird as well. And these are, again, long answer, sorry. But the, what can happen is, if you're, if you're, like all of us are, we're used to sort of being around people who work really hard and you get into this mindset of music having to be hard to be successful. And actually, sometimes, I'm not saying it's easy, but sometimes just because it's easy doesn't mean it's not good, basically. So, so there's a lot, a lot of things that you can tell we've been through a sort of bit of a process thinking about things, talking about stuff, whether or not, and also working out, trying to have self-awareness about of whether or not we're still worthy of any attention, basically. And we think we are because the sounds of music that we're hearing, you know, everywhere, is kind of coming back to the sound that we started with. So we think we're in the right area. I love that phrase, virtual crate digging. That's brilliant, I suppose. <laughs> You know, long gone are the days, you know, when you would be in like vinyl exchange and you're on, you know, piles of records and you've got a stall and you're looking through records like that. Um, but now yeah. it's all on, you can just go online and search for samples and pick bits out. And it's fantastic. You can, you can, you can lose, 
you can do you can, well we have we've done it for hours and hours and hours and because you get into rabbit holes and you find a blog about you know you find it a blog in, by someone who's really passionate about a certain era of funk and they've got a blog in mexico and you can't even understand that you know the writing but you can see the music and the, the image and, and you start investigating that fantastic and there's some amazing passion for music which is always encouraging because imagine 30 years ago you would have been actually crate digging when you're looking through vinyl for all the samples yeah. using your first album yeah 92 which for me is i don't know why there's something about 92 as Friends or Terrorists, like, I don't know, my favourite year for music. I don't know why. I mean, so many good albums in that year. We had Did Your Album, I think, was it Apex Twins, Selected Ambient Works? And then also, I think you had this kind of really good rock stuff like Sugar, Copper Blue, which, because I like rock from the rock stuff I liked, and uh, Sonic You. Um, yeah. So just thinking when going on, sorry, back to to the, the day. No, you're hundred percent you're hundred percent right, because also it was just just around about grunge as well, and that had all come out. And then but you had things like sugar and you had um Huskadu actually with I saw Huskadu um at the um I I am making the right link there, aren't I? Sugar and Huskadu. Yeah. On yeah, Bob Bob Mold, yeah. Right, yeah. So Huskadu was it was um one of the first bands I saw at the Hacienda, actually. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> oh no, um, I'm gone green with envy now. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Because <laughs> you, you, you were saying about being in the right frame of mind and, and about you were known as like a fun band because I remember kind of the 92, 93 when I really was going to getting into music and it was all fun, wasn't it? You had populated self, wonder stuff. It seemed that even the indie bands were, it was all about fun and stuff like that. So it must have just been an incredible time to be. <laughs> To be in a band, yeah, it, it was. Band <laughs> it was really good fun. There were a lot of a lot of interesting acts around, and as you say, a lot of people who perhaps didn't take themselves too seriously, but took the music seriously, which actually did work against us in later years. That unfortunately, I think people sort of got a little bit uh, overshadowed with the haircuts and the uh, the kind of the, the fun aspect of it, perhaps, and just sort of maybe it started to. They wanted, you know, Britpop happened and the Cool Britannia and all that kind of stuff. And a few of us felt like we didn't fit for a bit. Yeah, this never really touched upon, but it's something I've always thought about. No one's explored that whole thing. Britpop seemed to be come along. And then there were all these bands, like you had, like, at one time, it was Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine, Census Things, you guys, everything. And then it's like, oh, now Britpop. And it was all onwards with Oasis. And, but I was thinking that before then, you had all of these amazing dance act i think that was possibly the issue it was we were tricky to write about we we and we deliberately um when we started we deliberately kind of expanded quite quickly to a live band and then none of us could play guitar so i got this midi guitar which played samples and then i sampled guitar chords and then i could hit the guitar looking thing and it would play these samples and it made it look like a guitar so that was kind of the, the, the thinking behind it and that got us into america because we had a stand-up drummer as well and we always had tim on his decks in the in place of a lead guitarist and that was the whole so we were trying to bend it a little bit and there was a bit of resistance there but you're right i think it, it then it came back to quote proper bands for a bit and and that sort of sidelined um anybody using technology for for a while you've come did you come from a rock background didn't you were you a good in bands before the Utah Saints, or was that 
were you in rock bands before then yeah yeah so um i was kind of like my favorite band is probably uh, motorhead and so so i and part of me has always thought i would have had a different career if i just sort of gone right up the motorhead route but who knows but what, that's one of my favorite so yeah i've always come out of, of rock and um that that's why i had a bit of an epiphany when i first went to a rave I, which was 91 and no 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 it was before that it was about 90 i was promoting nightclubs and we were slowly and i was doing promoting by the time the utahs went i was promoting four nights a week so i was heavily involved in clubs and i saw a rave kind of evolve the way it did um, but the first time I went to like a, a, a kind of rave that wasn't in a club um, was at Air Pavilion in Scotland. And it was about four in the afternoon and I'd gone up with Tim because he was DJing. And I thought, you know, a four in the afternoon is kind of sleepy seaside place. What can possibly happen here? And I went in and there were a thousand people in there going bonkers. And, and it was like a rock gig. And that made me think. And, and also at the time, I kind of stuck out image-wise because I got when I walked into that rave, I'd got motorcycle boots on and my ripped jeans and the big stupid hair kind of thing and uh, or whatever, my big hair kind of thing. And I felt more akin to kind of rock and industrial music like Front 242. And I, I'd, I was in a band called Cassandra Complex for a bit who were like an electronic band. And, um, <laughs> sorry? I like the name. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, and um, and basically, I'd gone into that, to that environment. It was so accepting, though. And it was like it had the excitement of, of a rock thing for me. And I've always, I never really made the distinction in terms of excitement. I, I got the cultural differences and I got the, the kind of uh, difference in politics, perhaps, and, and the drugs thing and all that kind of thing. I got the differences. However, there was so many similarities between rock and, um, and dance. And the, the band that uh, were kind of, paved the way for us were a little bit were, were the poppies you know they were sampling rock stuff bringing it in dance stuff all sorts of stuff fantastic i used to love i used to love them i still love i still love them but yeah really sweaty gigs i remember just yeah loved them yeah yeah and you but can have that that's what's great about you guys because you kind of like appeal to both rock bands and to kind of dance music heads there's not many acts that can do that really that's why it was always same with the prodigy. You know the prodigy. You hear a lot. Yeah, of, I mean, like, they, the prodigy, you know, a lot of ravers, and it all kind of. I love that. That's what I think music should be about. Just you know. The, no, I'm glad. I'm glad you. Thank you for picking up on that. I'm glad you picked up on that. I mean, that's what we were trying to do. Tim came in from hip hop and dance, and I came out of rock and industrial, and where the two combined and collided, that's what we were trying to do. Again. So we did it off that album. We did the first three singles where we sampled uh, Annie Lennox, then Kate Bush, then Phil Oakey from the Human League. But the fourth single had me singing on it and sampled the band Slayer. So suddenly we got metal samples in there and that had pluses and minuses. It pushed us out of the dance thing a bit. And a lot, some of the dance people went, well, I'm not sure about this, but put us into kind of rock thing. And it, so it was, yeah, it was always brilliant to have a mosh pit and ravers all in the same, the same audience. Always fantastic. So loads, loads of influences going into that album and that the first album, which, which by the way, I'm, I'm not just saying this because I'm speaking to you today, but I still feel it says sounds fantastic. 
That's I brilliant. think Thank you. from that from that period, you know, like with the KLF and the White Room, which I still play as well because I love the KLF. It's kind of like those. It's just it just still sounds great. And I just wondered. Um, obviously, I mean, we'll touch upon, uh, you know, something good because I know that's still in a lot of people's hearts. Um, did it win a poll like recently? Was it? I read somewhere was it Ministry of Sound Ultimate Track or something? Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, yeah. It, Not it, today. It, it's, it's still people just, just still love it. I mean, it's so nice. I mean, what was the secret of his appeal? It's just amazing. It's always you always hear it everywhere. Yeah, we've been very humbled by that success of that track. Um, yeah, I, I, it, and it was. I think we. We always tried to make tracks that that we liked, <laughs> not necessarily that that we thought would fit with everything. That makes sense. And and we, it, there was a bit of trying to push the envelope a little bit. And we took loads of cues from from people like the KLF as well. You know, we're massive KLF fans, and uh, that's why we put Utah Saints. Utah Saints was because they put KLF. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So that was a that was a reason. You know, I wondered that. Yeah, because that. It's always been appealed to me with the KLF because they say their name a lot and yet they have all these different names and they, they mention it a lot in the songs. And that's been, it that makes a lot of sense. It must have been to me as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah, it. Sorry, yeah. If you've got, if you've got a, you know, three minutes on the radio, you should put your band name on there. You know, that's, um, that would just seem like a, a good thing to do. Because obviously the, the singles are great. Um, is it called... Uh, Kinetic synthetic. Yeah. Um, is it? Uh, it's the um, the transatlantic glide. Just trying to yeah. get the album. Yeah. It, especially with the kinetic, is that did that have any kind of craft work influences? I always wondered if that because it has a okay, so, so, maybe I'm old. Okay, so the the answer to that may be disappointing when it comes to kinetic synthetic because what happened with that track? is that's the one one track we're unsure about on the album because we had this is back in the in the day but when the album was being recorded we need deadlines i mean one of the reasons we haven't got we haven't we manage ourselves now pretty much donald does some some kind of uh, stuff in the, in the background but basically a lot of the, the deadlines we impose on ourselves as a result we take ages with that album we had a deadline and we took it to the point where we had to deliver a DAT tape of the masters. It had to be in London by a certain time of day, uh, like the first thing in the morning. And so we had a motorbike come up from London to pick it up about three in the morning to get it back down to London for nine in the morning because we were pushing it right up to the envelope. Anyway, we had one track left to do, which was that kinetic synthetic. And we just thought, right, just throw, we literally did it in a, in a few hours because we, we threw everything at it and then thought what will happen if we just um, randomly put our hands on the keyboards playing different samples and then to get a rhythm on it we gated it so it just so it has this kind of um, stuttering effect to it so everything came in time but it was a completely random set of events that made that track. So did, did you say you you weren't that pleased with it at the time or you, you weren't? Yeah we weren't we weren't <laughs> Because I love it. It's always, I love that track. Oh, brilliant. That's great. That's great. I mean, that's the thing about music is you can, you can never tell. And as, as an artist, if you're making anything, if you're painting or, you know, um, or if, if you're creating anything, even if, if you're making something in your shed or, or 
something out of Lego, but like my kids do. So you kind of think, start to think, well, um, is it any good or not? And so, and then you think, oh, maybe it's not that good, but then somebody else connects with it on a different level, you know, so you can never tell. Yeah. I was trying to think the first time I, and I first saw you guys on top of the pops, I mean, must have been 15, 16. And there's an image, you, I think you had like the bicycle shorts and the long baggy top. And did you have like colored, multicolored dreadlocks in a pose? Yeah. And yeah. you mentioned the, the, the guitar, did you say it was a digi? Yeah, um, for the Total Pop stuff, I generally used a bass, just to have a bass guitar, because Total Pops, again, in all, you know, they, they kind of wanted things to look a certain way, and so you, you wanted to kind of go along with, with what was on there and just confuse everybody, really. Because I wondered, um, you might not be conscious of this, but I quite like bands that have kind of either theatrical, I mean, they a good image, or like I said about the KLF, because the name and the logo is great, and you had a great logo. And a great look was that was that planned or did it just was the visual side of it is important because you look really good great because i remember being oh, thank, thank you thank you that's not that's the nice thing. thing yeah well that's that's a nice thing to say i mean basically no there was no plan we, we never um if anything we were always worried that me and tim looked pretty different and and that might work against us or, or i was looking a bit too a bit too rocky for people because i had a motorhead t-shirt on for that that top of the pops and um, so there was always that, that kind of a bit of a worry about whether or not, perhaps, yeah, the opposite way, and then I, about whether or not we looked right, whatever that, that means. Um, and again, you know, the project came along and just redefined that as well. I was always, I was always thinking when I saw Keith's, when Keith reinvented himself, because used we used to do quite a lot of raves at the same time. So we kind of beat them briefly in and out of raves at three in the morning and stuff. And then Keith, they disappeared for a bit, did that album, which is amazing. And uh, Keith came back with this multicolored hair. And I just thought, I thought I had some kind of, you know, rad hair. And then he came back with that. And I just thought, wow, that's blown me out of the water. So they, they took it, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to their level on their own thing. At the time, though, yeah, we did worry about, about, about the way we look because we just thought we, maybe we looked too rocky. And then the logo was our drummer at the time, Keith. Um, we had a few hours and he, he just knocked it up in a few hours and that was it. And then it became a bit like the Coca-Cola advert uh, logo in that it's had about, it must have had 10 different designers have a go at that logo and try and improve it and work it around. And it's never, it's always gone back to the original. It's great. And it's like, I mean, we mentioned like saying Top of the Pops. I mean, how many times did you guys play Top of the Pops? Uh, six. 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 That's impressive. Um, and yeah. so what was that like? Do you have any memorable... Stories from yeah, that I mean, you played with, yeah. Playing Bill. <laughs> the, well, the first it was quite a long journey for because I'd, I'd I'd been in bands since since I was at school and um, various different bands and there's a band I mentioned earlier, Cassandra Complex, one of, which was one of the first successes I had. But I was also in a surf band, um, and I left to join Cassandra Complex, and the guitarist left to join the Henry Rollins band. So there was a connection. We both came out of the surf band in different directions. So for example, it's just weird musical connections because you'd never put the Utah Saints anywhere near the Henry Rollins band, but there's loads of connections. One of my first jobs was driving Henry Rollins around Leeds to the studio because they recorded their, their first two, his first two solo albums recorded in Leeds. So there's loads, of, anyway, um, so by the time I'd got to Total Pops, I'd been in three or four bands and you walk in there and suddenly it's a massive relief. 
because you suddenly feel like you've kind of got to where you think you thought you wanted to be when you were a kid. I mean, pretty quickly you realign your priorities and, and, and set new goals and, and all those kind of things. But the, the first, you know, for a few days, getting offered it, turning up, performing at it, being able to, you know, point to people you know and go, look, I'm on the telly. <laughs> um, that's, that's kind of, and it kind of legitimizes stuff. I think all of us are looking for some kind of, you know, someone to come along and go, actually, what you're doing is, is okay. Who was presenting it when you did the first one? Would it be like Jackie Brambles? Or... Yeah, it was Jack, I can't remember. Jackie, oh, Jackie like Brambles. Uh, Bob Geldof uh, um, did one of them. Uh, so is it you? Because he was a guest presenter. And yeah, I can't remember who, who, who else was on there. Yeah. Great. And when you were, of sort of the release of the album, obviously you would have done, no doubt you would have done some support slots, as everyone does when they start. Or did you have any sort of bigger support slots with any kind of, kind of stadium band <laughs> any sort of memorable tours that you went on in your port? well yeah I mean I don't know if, if, if you're referring to we did we supported you too on 10 of their gigs in stadiums um, and that was that was the kind of thing where you get offered it and you can't really say no because again it's a, it's like a lifetime one of those lifetime experiences because they just played enormous football stadiums and they were you know the biggest, I think, was 75,000, 80,000 people in the Stadium of Light in Lisbon. Smallest was about 40,000 in, in Spain, in Oviedo. But, um, yeah, we did 10 of those gigs. And it was when they were doing Zeropa and um, Zeropa Tour. They had two albums out quickly. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, that was amazing. I can still remember walking into Rotterdam Football Stadium um, during the day. For the, that was the first gig of that, of that tour. The, at the 10 date I walked into the stadium through the players tunnel and the road crew of U2's road crew were sound checking where the streets have no name and it was just one of those perfect moments so I just walked out into the stadium with that coming out of the PA and you just think you know this is an amazing moment and then the show itself regardless of whether you know of how one views uh, U2's music it was an amazing show in a stadium that was that managed to somehow take the entire audience to a place where, you know, away from everything. And, and to achieve that was amazing. So to be part of that was, was fantastic. At the same time, you know, just doing all sorts of festivals with different bills. We've been very lucky that um, eventually it came good and people did see us that we could put us on different bills with different people. So we, we played with you too, um, uh, which was interesting because we didn't have a, a lot of the tracks. We didn't have a lead singer. So, you know, we've got Kate Bush coming out of the, the sampler, for example. And so and we're playing a stadium of basically rock fans. So it was interesting from that point of view. A bit scary. I was going to say it, sort of pre-gig nerves. I mean, I can't even imagine. You know. Yeah, it's scary, but most performers, you know, and you may have found this yourself, it is, it's equally scary playing in front of five of your mates because... The only thing you've got with a big crowd, you tend to have uh, a few tools at your disposal as long as your music's okay. And, and and one of those is the anonymity. So nobody re you can get away with being the persona on stage that you are. So for me, it was always Jez Utah. I have to get into that headspace as a performer. And um, you, you can't get away. You feel like you can't do that in front of your mates. 
So if you, so that just having a few mates there can be really intimidating. So I always say to people, it actually, it, it's not easier, but it's a very, it's a different experience when you don't know who's in the audience. Yeah, I, I could imagine you two's crowd liking your sort of thing. I mean, you two, I know some of their albums they had very well, electronic elements to them, didn't they? Well, that was it. We got lucky that Zuropa was, was was when they were experimenting with electronics Bono. and yeah, Bono loves and, electronic music, doesn't he? That's... He does. So does Adam Clayton, you know. Um, and Adam Clayton, the whole band were amazing to us as well. You know, they're really, really nice. Um, treat us with respect, which they didn't have to, you know. We, it was just, they kind of, um, you two, uh, very down to earth kind of act behind, the, you know, when they understand when they have to act like rock stars, but equally they understand when, when they're, they're kind of backstage and, and they, they would eat with everybody else, with the crew and everything. You know, there was no kind of special thing for them. It's great. So you said you adopted, so you adopted the Utah surname. Is that part of the thing as well? Like, so when you're in Utah Saints? Yeah, yeah, Tim does it. Yeah, Tim does that. I love that as well. Like, like the Ramones, you know, having a thing. Yeah, yeah. That's a bit different, but, you know, I'm thinking... Who were also on that tour. That The Ramones were on that tour as well. So in Oviedo, the Spain one, I, it was amazing. It was like a, you know, for me, it was like a, a kid's dream come true because I, I, I got to see the Ramones and be backstage with them and, and you too so it was, yeah it's amazing I'm, I'm going I'm turning green <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to say um, now obviously we've sort of spoke about making music and your songs and stuff um, but also DJing is a massive part of what you do um, and just only recently I think I saw is it a live stream you did the Street Raid um, yeah I mean, that was, that was brilliant. And I, I was just wondering about, because I know a few DJs myself, and I think people don't realise the amount of work that goes into just putting a set together. I mean, I just want to know your process of, say, working towards something like that. When you when you start planning what you're going to play, and um, is it you know, a long process? It's interesting you, you brought that up, because um, both me and Tim have been DJs for, for, since we were at school as well. And... Um, we DJ all sorts of different stuff. So as Utah's, we, we do a certain set and Tim leads that because he was a, a DMC uh, scratch champion when he was 17. Um, so he's a real turntablist, skillful house person. And I've seen him play next to some of the biggest DJ names in the world. And, you know, they, they all, I'm not just saying this, but the consensus was always what a great DJ he is. So there was that. And then I was always DJing to kind of subsidize my bands income and I so um, and then quite often I'd end up DJing um, we, we started a regular Saturday night in Leeds at the Elba Room not as Utah's but where we the idea was to start with slow funk tracks and over five hours get to drum and bass via basically everything else so it was all dance stuff uh, but it was like starting off the funk and then into a bit of hip hop uh, and then house and then drum and bass kind of thing roughly and um I've only just recently, because I had a couple of connections at, at, up at the uni, started thinking about the process of putting tracks together and how it informs what we do with the Utahs. And you're absolutely right in that there's more thought goes into it than one would at first think. Because otherwise, you can you start jarring records and you put you put two records together which you think are both great, but because they don't work together, it makes everybody confused. So, but, you know. And you have to get used to um, a dance floor turning around and stuff like that. So 
I started off DJing with a kind of mobile setup, doing weddings and things like that. And they are far more challenging than doing a Utah set at a festival or something like that. Because a wedding, you just get everyone coming up to you. You get, you know, little kids that come coming up to you, kind of just nagging you to play something poppy. And then you get, you know, the, the grandparents coming up going, you need to play something slow so we can have it. And then you realise that it takes the grandparents almost two tracks to realise that it's something slow, that, then put the drink down, then stand up, then get to the dance floor. And by, by that time, both the tracks are over that they're meant to be dancing to. So you have to, you have to anyways, it, there's a whole heap of stuff goes into your thoughts. So something like Street Rave, which was the, the rave I was talking about, the reason we do stuff with them is because um, that was the first rave we ever played up in Air, Scotland. And um, so we kind of know, know the audience quite well there. And we try and do a mix of, of things that, that people will recognise from kind of back in the day, but we also try and do up-to-date versions of them and mix in, in kind of stuff that's just come out because there is, there is a thread that connects everything together. So I would just sort of think now, because there's so many sets that you can now... Um, is on SoundCloud. If you, I've, I've listened to quite a few. Yeah, we've got different things on SoundCloud. Yeah. I mean, they've, they've been perfect for me when I'm in the car. Some of the time you've done like a 30 minute, you know, mix, and that's great, gets me to work. And then um, I just think it's some of my favorites. Was there one called Simp Hero from a few years ago? Simp yeah, there's a, yeah there's a, that's a podcast as well, actually. Quiet Life or something. It starts off with Quiet Life, which, I mean, you can't go wrong with this. I love that song. And I think you've even put KLF in the middle of that. You remember KLF, yeah. which is one of my favourite tracks. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's just it's some great stuff. And also you've remixed. I mean, I remember you remixed lots of bands as well. I, I used to see your on like cassette singles of different bands. I'd see remixed by Utah Saints. So yeah, we used to memorable remix. I mean, you've done everyone since I can remember. Um, you even did Blondie, did you? you make a Blondie track? Yeah, we did Blondie. Uh, we're lucky enough to Blondie. We did quite a big one for Annie Lennox. We did uh, Little Bird for her, and that, that became quite a big hit. Um, and then um, we also uh, remixed Bring Me the Horizon, actually, as well. That, that was that was good fun to do. Um, we like going, and there was a, we like kind of going outside our genre. We remixed um, Silver Machine by Hawkwind as well. So there's, there's quite a, kind of a few things, and but also we've got pop things like Girls Aloud and stuff like that. So, yeah, we, we tend to say yes to most things unless it's... We turned down quite a few things that have been iconic tracks. If we felt it was a really iconic track, then then we, we, you know, we wouldn't do it because just because there are some things we feel that we couldn't add anything to. Yeah. So I was just thinking then... Um... I think you said that you were. You mentioned the college. So you're still do you doing college lecturing now? Yeah. So I did a, a bit of that and and um, and sort of working with just just to sort of um, if I've got a bit of knowledge, I just try and pass on a little bit of knowledge. But generally, the, the most powerful message I've got, to be honest, is um, to keep doing things because it and that's kind of a, a life thing. Because every every time we kind of just sort of buckled down and gone right what's happening and then you realize nothing's happening and then you kind of think right why isn't anything happening it's because we're not doing anything so we and then the moment you start doing something something random happens we the utah saints have been a series of random events to be honest driven by me and tim but we've, we've never had a plan that thought we're setting off here and 
we're going to end up there. It's just uh, never happened like that. The first time we got, I mean, the Total Pops thing took us by surprise, to be honest, because three months earlier, we'd been sat in the studio in Leeds, press, and then we got, we got the money together to press a thousand copies onto vinyl of What Can You Do For Me? And we just expected to sell a thousand copies and move on to the next one. And then three months later, we're on top of the pop. So it just, it just went, yeah, but no plan, no plan. <laughs> I'll just say that that's coming to the end. I'd say that's probably perfect advice to give to someone who's starting out. And um, so obviously you touched about working on new music, which is delighting me. And um, so what other sort of plans do you have for the rest of the year? Hopefully we've, we've seen now with the announcement that hopefully the lockdown is going to start to ease. Hopefully we'll see some return to live music. Yeah, I mean, we will get out as soon as we can uh, playing live and we've always enjoyed, you know, all sorts of scenarios and, and like I say, over the years we've ended up from things like playing main stages at festivals to playing techno clubs in Madrid and stuff and we've always, or, or our own night in Leeds where it's it's funk and hip-hop and stuff. So we've kind of always had a, a big interest in a broad set of music and um, so if, if lockdown lifts, yeah, we'll be out again but also... The plan is that we're, we're, yeah, we are working on new stuff. We've spent, um, you know, four years virtually crate digging, finding samples that nobody else has used. And we think we've got some stuff to work with now. And we want to make uplifting, you know, let's have it type of tracks basically now. Well, I look forward to being uplifted by your music. And thanks for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it. Taking some time. Thanks, Scott. And, and thanks for, you know, for doing such an interesting podcast that, that champions electronic music. We're all about that. So that's great. Keep up the good Thank work. Thank you very much. Thank you.